Today, our passage we'll be hearing from is found in Matthew 5, 38 through 48. If you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are some hard copies under a few of the seats in front of you. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, please take that for you. Consider it a gift from us. Um, Again, we'll be reading from Matthew 5, 38 through 48. And once you arrive there, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not, e- do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Doc. Morning. Hope you guys are doing okay. Uh, my name is Corey. Uh, if you're a first-time visitor, I want to thank you for being with us today. Uh, we are always joyed when we see new people. I mean, I was telling somebody the other day with the move to two, ter- two services, I see new people all the time, even if you've been here for six months, because uh, we're kind of service rovers, so I may miss you from time to time. But if you're a first-time visitor, let me welcome you to Providence this morning. We're thankful that you're here. Our hope is that in the time we have together, we will make much of Jesus during this time, not much of ourselves as a church, and make much of our perfect King Jesus who we love and we serve. And because of that, uh, you'll be compelled to join us in covenant membership moving forward in that way. So uh, as I said, my name's Corey. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And we're going to hop right into a sermon series that we've been working on since the, the beginning of the year titled Kingdom and King, in which we're working our way through a portion of scripture known as the Sermon on the Mount, as Ty told you. And this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. Now, in this series, over the last couple of weeks, we've dealt with some, uh, some pretty difficult topics, right? We have, we've been through anger and lust. Uh, we've been through divorce and oaths. And this morning, we're going to spend some time talking about retaliation and loving enemies. It's not really the, the most feel-good portion of our sermon calendar this year, and, and I think that's okay. I think it's important that we spend time in these topics because th- these are focuses on real sin issues that we're wrestling with in one way or another. And I can tell you from this perspective, both the hearer and the preacher. Court and I have had some pretty, uh, pretty good conversations over the last couple of weeks about struggling with these things as we prepare them and we, we begin to, to present them because the Lord, what he does first is he begins to illuminate onto our own hearts and say, hey, uh, and then the enemy creeps in and says, how, how can you feel as though you can stand and talk to these people about anger and lust, right? Because I am a, a struggler with those, with those same things. But I think it's important that we spend time here because we're all living in this space. It would be significantly easier to gloss over and not spend any time in these things, but God hasn't called us to that, right? We teach hard topics, number one, because they're in the Bible, but secondly, it's because looking at the hard things and looking at our life through the hard things that we read in the Bible is when we can truly begin to see the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
It's that already not yet tension that we talked about. We are already righteous because of Christ, but we are not yet with Christ. Therefore, we still struggle with these things here as we're being made more like Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what I wanted to touch on quickly before getting into the scriptures this morning is that I think there are two dangers when we spend time on topics as we have been over the last couple of weeks. Number one, I believe our, our primary danger is that believers may begin to focus on their failures and forget about the blood of Christ that was shed for those very failures. Right? You might hear last week and you might think, man, I am really bad at keeping oaths. I'm terrible at this covenant thing. And to that, I would say, join the club. Thank God for his grace. Right? We're all terrible at those things. And then secondly, believers may begin to think, you may look at these things and say, man, I've gotten really good at this list that they've given us over the last four weeks. And, and we may begin to puff up with pride. You may think, man, my anger is under control. I'm nailing it. And what I would say to you is repent of your pride and thank God for his grace. Like there's this level playing field and we're trying to play in the middle of these two ditches that are on either side that we can easily fall into when we begin to talk about the specific issues of sin as we see Jesus doing here. So throughout this week, as I've prepared and, and, and kind of prayed through this text, I found myself asking God over and over again to help all of us stay out of both camps, to stay in the middle, to understand who we are through Christ, who we are in Christ, and what it is Christ is trying to do through these types of teachings. So what I want to do this morning is uh, I just want to pray for us before we get started, and I want to um, want to ask God to help us humble ourselves, right? Help us to see our need for him and cling to him when we're failing, but even more so cling to him when we think we're doing really well, right? So let me pray for us this morning, then we'll get into the scripture. God, we need you this morning. Father, we need you for clarity. We need you for illumination. God, we need you to, to speak to us through your word. God, to, um, to open our eyes to the truth of it. God, to open our eyes to our standing before you, Father, because of the cross, God, that we are, we are made whole. Father, we are wholly acceptable to you because of Christ. And God, I pray that, that as we, we spend time this morning, as we look at what it means, that what Jesus is teaching on retaliation, Jesus is teaching on loving our enemies, God, that we would not find a list of things that we should do, God, but we would in that we would find you incredibly glorious. God, in the way that you've dealt with us, in the way that you have handled us, but also, God, in the way that you empower us to do that which you've called us to do. God, I pray that would be true this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so jumping right off into the scripture, we'll start in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, uh, where Jesus says, you've heard, it, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, this is a pretty famous, pretty famous rhetoric from Scripture, right? We've all heard this in one way or another, eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. It's referred to in the book of Deuteronomy as the law of the tooth. It's also referred to as the law of retaliation. And as I've said, we've all heard that at one time or another. We may have even found ourselves championing that verse, whether we're a believer or a non-believer, as a biblical code that somehow authorizes our ability to retaliate against those who have wronged us and to be able to do it lawfully. I was sitting at work this week in the conference room, and we had a meeting, and prior to the meeting, I'm talking with a coworker, and he had had to leave early the day before, so he's telling me what happened. He said, man, I uh, got a call from my son's school. His son's nine, a little older than Jonah. He said, I got a call from my son's school, and, and he had gotten in a fight, and they had him in the office, and I had to go in, and I had to, to visit with him, and he starts telling me what happened between these two boys at school, which ended with you know a few punches being thrown, and he tells me, he says... I'm all right with it, though, because the other boy hit him first. And then he, he literally, it was interesting that I was studying these texts. He said, you know, kind of like that eye for an eye thing. 
what he said. And I was like, man, that's, that makes a lot of sense. So we'll often use that to, to justify these things. Um, sometimes for our own personal life, we'll look and we'll say, hey, I've been wronged by someone, right? So rather than follow biblical wisdom and confront that person, we gather up our friends and we begin to slander their character. And we think that it's okay because why? Because that person has wronged us, that, that eye for an eye thing, right? So we have the ability to go back after them. And I want to say to you this morning, I believe that it's our natural human tendency to be a people that seek revenge when we're wronged. Like it's our natural human tendency to do that. We have a burning desire within us to right our own wrongs. But as we see, as we continue through this text, Jesus forbids that practice for his followers. So Jesus forbids going with that natural instinct to seek revenge or to seek retaliation. And he says what we see in verses 39 through 42. He says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, Jesus here is teaching something that seems quite the opposite of what was taught in the law of retaliation or what he, he quoted before he did that. So the question that we've had to wrestle with throughout this whole passage of Scripture all through the Sermon on the Mount is this question, is Jesus contradicting the law? Is he coming? Is he contradicting the law? Is he saying that it was wrong? And the answer to that question is no. See, the Scripture teaches us that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. Jesus didn't come to replace the law, but he came to complete it. So what is it that he's doing here when he says this? So when Jesus says to them, and, and by proxy to us, when he says, do not resist the one who is evil, is he telling us to passively let evil run rampant? The answer to that question is no, he's not doing that at all. Uh, that would stand in opposition to other teachings in the Bible. And a quick rule of thumb that, that I've had to learn over the years is, is when you read something in one portion of Scripture that seems to contradict something you read in another portion of Scripture, the problem is never with the Scripture, but the problem is with the reader. The problem is with the interpretation as we read it. So when we read throughout the Bible and littered throughout Scripture are calls for believers to intervene when evil's present, to protect the vulnerable, care for the orphan and widow, to not stand idly by while others are hurt. Um, littered throughout Scripture are those things, and we see them everywhere. Therefore, if Scripture interprets Scripture, then any portion of Scripture that stands into opposition to any other portion of Scripture we need to look at it again. We need to step back and read it. So when Jesus says, hey, you've heard, an eye for, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, then he says, do not resist the one that is evil. He's not contradicting the law, but rather he is helping us see what the law really meant. Jesus continues on to say in, in the second half of that verse, he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. I thought this was interesting. And he said that a slap on the right cheek would have been interpreted as like a, a backhanded Slap, which is not only a physical harm, but it's also an insult. When you were in junior high, uh, when I won't speak for you ladies, when boys were in junior high and uh, two young men, as I said earlier, locked into combat on the playground, it was one thing to be punched in the face. It was another thing to be slapped in the face. Like that, you, <laughs> you had no choice but to respond if someone slapped you in the face because then all your friends would be like, man, he didn't even hit you. He slapped you. He absolutely punked you. And this is what Jesus is saying here. The backhanded or the slap on the right cheek interpreted as a backhanded slap that would have brought both physical harm and a great insult. And if someone harms you, if someone insults you, Jesus says, do not resist. Rather, give them 
the opportunity to do it again. Verse 40, it says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Verse 41 says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And that's interesting. At the time, Roman law allowed Roman soldiers to stop any Jew at any time, make them drop whatever they were carrying, and carry whatever the load was that the Roman soldier was moving forward with. The law said that the Jew only had to go one mile carrying the Roman soldier's load. But Jesus says, don't only give him what's permitted by the law, go two two miles. Go two miles with him. Continue to move forward if if you are wronged in that way. Verse 42, Jesus goes on to say, give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And I think it's interesting to me that he throws that in there. What do we know about loaning things to people? Tools, money, whatever. There's a real good chance that you're not going to get that stuff back. I I wasn't in the middle, but I had to referee conflict between two guys that worked for me this week because one guy borrowed a tool bag and he didn't bring it back. And I walk into the control room and these two guys are, are literally like tearing into one another over this tool bag I let you borrow it and you didn't take care of it. You lost it. I'm missing this wrench and that wrench and this ratchet and that ratchet. And there's this argument. There's a real good chance oftentimes that when we loan things to people, we're not going to get it back. And this can be a sore spot in a lot of relationships. And the reason Jesus brings it in here is because that can often lead the offended to seek retaliation against the offender. Lee and I have had a rule, a rule of thumb that we play by since we've gotten married, and it's that we never loan money, we only give money. We, don't, we never loan money with an expectation to receive money. Back, we just give money in order to try, to try to circumvent any issues or any consequence that may go with that. So you hear Jesus' teaching, and at a surface level, Jesus seems to be calling the believer to be passive and permissive of wrongdoing. But the only problem with that conclusion is that Christ was none of these things. So Christ has never called us to be anything that he was not. He's never called us to do anything that he has not been willing to do. In reality, he was the exact opposite of all those things, and he doesn't want us to be those things either. He was the opposite of passive. He was the opposite of permissive of evil. So Jesus' point in speaking here is this. He says, in seeking retaliation, we're seeking justice for ourselves And it's not up to us to bring justice. That is God's job. God is the arbiter of justice. The scribes and Pharisees had taken an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And they had perverted it to give them power to take justice into their own hands as they see fit. And Jesus was speaking against this action. They chose to ignore the fact that when an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was given, when the law law of the tooth was given, it was given to the judges in the law to ensure fairness and the distribution of punishment for crimes. So it was literally, quite literally, a tooth for a tooth and not a tooth for a, or not a head for a tooth, right? To ensure that we were not levying punishments that were greater than than the crimes. And God set up those authoritative powers and intended for those in authority to operate with no biases. And when we retaliate for wrongdoings, wrong things done to us, What our human nature is, is to take more from the other than was actually taken from us. I remember being 12 years old in 1994. And when I was a kid, I I wasn't really a wake up and watch cartoons kind of guy. I was a wake up and watch sports center kind of guy for for as long as I can remember. That's just kind of where I lived. And in 1994, there was a singer by the name of Lisa Left Eye Lopez. Some of you are familiar, TLC, for for those that that don't know. 
At the time, in 1994, she was dating a receiver that played for the Buffalo Bills named Andre Risen. And I remember this story on SportsCenter because I thought it was so ridiculous. She's dating Andre Risen, and she got aggravated with him. He went out with a group of friends. She went out with a group of friends. She got home first, like at 5 a.m., which at 36, I'm like, 5 a.m.? Like, how in the world are you guys doing this? But she gets home at like 5, and the story goes... She noticed a bunch of new shoes that Andre Risen had purchased for himself. And then he noticed, she noticed no new shoes that Andre Risen had purchased for her. So she got angry about this. Why didn't he buy me shoes? And in order to retaliate against Andre Risen, she lit his shoes on fire and threw them in a bathtub and burned his house to the ground. And even at 12 years old, I'm looking, I'm thinking, it's pretty drastic, left eye. Like, you could... <laughs> You could have handled that a hundred different ways. Burnt his house to the ground over shoes. And the impulse for us, the impulse to seek justice and to take more flesh than was taken from us is something we'll always struggle to control. But here in the scripture, Jesus is giving us a better way. He's giving us a better way to work with that. And he does this because he knows that we can't do it. He knows that that there's no way that we can control it. What Jesus ultimately wants us to do as believers is to trust God to be the arbiter of justice and not try to take that justice into our own hands. So to trust our God to be the one that provides justice, that cares for us, that makes things right so that we don't have to be burdened with doing that. He does this because he knows we can't do that, man, and, and, and we won't do that. We won't execute that justice in an honorable way. You may think to yourself, I've never burnt my boyfriend's house down over shoes, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that you haven't done that, but I promise you that all of us at some point have had an argument, and when recounting the story with our friends, we've added a little bit more to it just to show ourselves in a more favorable light. Is that not the same? Is that not the same concept as taking more than was actually there so that we come out on top of the situation? The thing to remember here when we talk retaliation in the words of Jesus is that justice is of utmost importance to the Lord, but justice is the Lord's. And why that's important is because if we don't understand that justice belongs strictly to the Lord, the Lord's justice may not be what we want it to be. And therefore, we may begin to think there's stuff I have to add to what the Lord has done because he clearly hasn't avenged me in this moment. He clearly hasn't treated me well. He clearly hasn't done these things. And here, but here we see in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 19 through 21, this is what we read. His beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, this is the mark of a true Christian, that we would be satisfied knowing God is for us and justice is his to distribute however he sees fit, even if it doesn't suit our expectations. We trust God with that. We give that over to him. That is what frees us from the desire for retaliation. This is what Jesus is talking about here in the scripture. We trust our God to defend us. Therefore, there is no need for retaliation. There is no need for revenge. There is no need to burn the shoes. We don't have to do that. We trust God to be the one that does that for us. Now, last week, Court preached a sermon on divorce and oaths, and he referenced Jesus's intentionality in tying those two topics together to reveal God's desire for us to be covenant keepers in every area of life. He went from from marriage all the way down to church membership. I thought it was a great job with that text. If you hadn't heard it, you should get back, go back to the podcast whenever you get some time 
And listen, and I bring that up this morning because I believe Jesus is doing the same thing here. I believe that Jesus calls believers not to seek retaliation against those who wrong us and to trust God to be the arbiter of justice because that is what frees us to love our enemies. That is what frees us to love those that we are at odds with. That is what frees us to love those that we might have tension with that otherwise we would rather not love. If we are free from our need to retaliate and get revenge, we are free to love those that we want to get revenge upon, right? Because there's no barrier there anymore between the two. I believe Jesus is weaving these together for that reason. Before we get into the rest of the scripture, I want to do something really, really quickly. We're going to be talking uh, from this point forward about what it means to love our enemies. And if you're like me, when you hear the word enemy, oftentimes you'll think of, you'll, for me, I think of war, right? I think of like missiles, like going to blow up castles of evil dictators who hate our country for no other reason than we are who we are. Now, the reality the reality of this text is that, that Jesus is, is saying or he's referring to an enemy simply as someone we are actively opposed to or hostile to. I read this for years and said, well, I don't have any enemies. Like, I don't want to kill anybody. You know, like, I, I don't want to, like, have anyone disappear from the earth. Therefore, I might just be able to, like, gloss over this idea to love our enemies. But the more I've dug into this over the years, the more I've re realized that it's actually a much simpler, simpler definition. I mean, the English definition of the word enemy um, simply says that it's someone that, that we are opposed to or hostile to. If you go to the original language, the only thing that's added to opposition and hostility is hate. So really, at the end of the day, when Jesus says, love your enemies, he's saying, love those you're opposed to. Love those you're hostile with. Love those you have conflict with. And in order to do that, he gives us a few words on how that's supposed to be done. So when we discuss enemies, we're discussing someone we might be hostile toward or someone we might passionately dislike. I know no one in this room has anyone that they feel that way about. I know I don't. I'm, I'm, I'm level with everybody, you know. So we'll jump in right at verse 43, Matthew 5, 43. Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, stop right there. Um, up until this point, as we talked about earlier, Jesus has quoted the law, and then he's interpreted the law. He's not doing that here. Nowhere in your Bible will you find the command to hate your enemy. It doesn't exist. It, it's, it's not in there. So, so up until this point, that's what Jesus has done, but he's stopped doing that here. But, he's all, but what he's actually doing is referencing a practice uh, that had become common among the Jews, even though it was not part of the law. Namely, the hatred of anyone who was not Jewish, the hatred of what we would call the Gentiles. And we've read about that through Paul's writings. We've talked about it in here before. But Jesus is, is hitting that head on and saying, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But that's not a direct quote of Scripture. See, the Jews viewed the Gentiles as enemies of God and enemies of his people. Therefore, there was an extreme hatred there that was rooted in the need for retaliation. Gentiles would have been seen by Jews as their primary, their primary enemy at this time in the Bible. But Jesus was not only calling them to love Jews, but to love Gentiles also, even though they were counted as enemies. So that kind of gives you a little bit of background on what he's driving at here. Um, much like the Jews, those we count as enemies are almost always those who have wronged us in some way, no matter how small. Right? Like if you can sit here and you can say, there are people that I'm opposed to, there are people that I'm hostile to, 
you would have some root for that opposition or that hostility. In some way, you have been wronged by that person. I, I, I have no doubt there's people sitting in this room that by that definition also still have enemies from high school, I would think. I had a guy, when I was in high school, my arch nemesis, my arch enemy, went to a school about an hour away over in Winnie, a place called East Chambers. And when you're 16, 17, 15 years old, uh, for me anyway, most of my nemesises in high school were were rooted in in athletics some way, right? So this guy was an incredible football player. He was a great linebacker for East Chambers. He was fast. I remember his hair. He had this bowl haircut like you had in the late 90s, like down below your eyebrows. And it was bleach blonde. And when he put his green and yellow helmet on, about a quarter inch of that, that hair stuck out, and I hated it. I wanted to rip it out of his head. Um, he, was, he was actually that good. At, I mean, he was, very, he was a very good player. And the reason there was so much hostility is he and I, for years, for four years, um, we were lined up in positions that we were always in contact with each other. Like, we were always, I remember my senior year, they, we never beat them. They were that good. We were good, too. But we were good enough to be second place because they were that good. They always just beat the tar out of us every year. And I remember my senior year wanting to beat them and beat him so badly that I carried around a picture of this guy with me for a week. And I just seethed. I would just watch. I'd just look at him and be like, I, I dislike you. Funny story, though. In 2008, as a grown man, I walk into my first day at my job at ExxonMobil, go through the gate, open the door, sign in, and turn around and look at the console. And there he is. He's sitting there. And uh, so, you know, I, immediately I was angry. I said, I'm just going to fight him now and lose this job. <laughs> and, then, and then I realized I was 28, and that was probably stupid, and I had other things to do. I was about to get married, and Leah wouldn't have married me without that. So, um, but it, but I say, I'll tell you that story to tell you that he and I have worked side by side now for 12 years. He's one of, my, one of the best friends I've got in the world. He's a great dude. But uh, I, this, this was my adversary in high school. I legitimately... If I had seen him at Sonic at 17, I would have fought him in the parking lot. It's just the way it would have gone. Some of us are still potentially harboring, you know, hostility, harboring opposition with people. Like I said, maybe from high school for even more sinister reasons. Maybe there's some bullying, some abuse, some things like that that took place. Like those, those things happen, and they are very real, and they're much more serious than athletic conflict. Um, some of us have enemies at work. Some of us have enemies who are our neighbor. Um, truthfully, if we're honest, church, some of us have enemies that are sitting in this room with us right now. They're just a few rows over, and you don't like that person either, even though we're all part of the family of God. Like That is just the reality of who we are. For whatever reason and whatever context, our enemies have somehow caused us pain or hurt. And in verse 44, Jesus speaks to how we are to handle those enemies. Look at verse 44 with me. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, and then In verse 45, he tells us why. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So Jesus says we must love our enemies, we must pray for our enemies, so we may be sons of our Father in heaven, so that we may have the same characteristics as God. Which at the end of the day, isn't that really what we're after? We're after the same characteristics as our Father. Isn't that what the Holy Spirit is working in our lives daily through, through, we've already used the word, but I'll use it again, through our sanctification? You see, when we have enemies, we can look to God to see how he handles his enemies and follow suit. Now, that statement will oftentimes suck the air out of the room. But the truth is, the Bible tells us that God 
does have enemies. Look at Romans 5, verse 10. It says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So according to Paul, who were the enemies of God? Prior to salvation, we were enemies of God. So when we begin to develop that perspective, we can begin to understand that God loved us even when we were hostile towards him, even when we opposed him, even when we were enemies of him, and we can see why he calls us to do the same. The, the, the scarier part of that and the more maybe something we should, we should really be looking at is that keeping with that logic, those who still haven't come to salvation are to this day still enemies of God. And we see in the second half of verse 45, how does God treat his enemies? Well, he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So God continues to bless his enemies through what, what's referred to as common grace, which isn't to be confused with special grace, which is the grace of God in saving sinners. But God continues to give his enemies that which they need to sustain their life. He gives them rain. He gives them sun. Those things help us sustain life. They helped them sustain life. Crops grow because of those things. The rain we drove through this morning is falling on my home and causing my flowers to grow and bloom, which the Bible tells me illuminates the glory of God. That same rain is falling on the most evil person in my neighborhood and causing his flowers to grow and reflect the grace and the power and the beauty of God. That's how God deals with his enemies. He doesn't wither the flowers of the evil. He doesn't dry up their crops. He doesn't do those things. He continues to extend grace to them. And why does he do this? He does this so they may see his love and they may be led to repentance and faith in Christ. So why would we love ours? The same justification that they may see the love of God. We love our enemies so we may reflect our Father and giving them grace, which in turn may reflect the saving grace of God that he has given to us. I mean, is there a more powerful way to display the love of God than to love those who wrong us? Is there a more powerful way? How easy is it to love those who love us? It's incredibly easy. Marriage sometimes is, is different than what I just said. But nonetheless, it is incredibly easy to only love those who love us. Jesus says so in the scripture. But it is incredibly powerful to display the love of God through loving those who wrong us. It is otherworldly. It is unlike anything you will find in any other culture except for the one that we belong to when we say that we are sons and daughters of Christ. There's nothing else like it. And then Jesus wraps that portion of scripture up by saying this, verse 46 through 48. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus says if we're only loving those who love us, he tells them if they're only loving those who love them, they're no better than tax collectors or Gentiles, which are the very enemies that they had said they were okay to hate. So Jesus says, you don't love your enemies, you're just like your enemies. You're the same. Like there's no difference between you. By hating your enemy, you're no better than your enemy. And even worse, even worse, you're not reflecting the image of God. 
You're not reflecting the image of God. So as we strive to conform to the teaching of Jesus and to the whole of Scripture, we are conforming to the very perfection of God as it is revealed in the Scripture. And Jesus wraps it up by saying, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So in other words, don't ignore this teaching. This is a hard one. This is an easy one to ignore. Like, it's incredibly easy to read this and get up and leave here and be like, man, yeah, yeah, it's easy to say, but you don't know what happened. Like, you don't really understand the dynamics of the issue. But Jesus, I think it's important that he leaves us there. Be You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Continue to strive for these things. Do not dismiss them because it is not just something we should do, but Jesus says it is something that we must do. We must we must strive for this. So just a little bit more before I'm ready to close. How, how do we apply this to our lives? That's a lot of information. Like that, is a, that is a lot of stuff that, you know, if I'm honest, the first time I started looking at it, I said, I don't really want to deal with this right now. Like, I just count on grace to cover that when I don't like this person or I have opposition with this person or I have hostility with this person and I'll just let it go because I'm an avoider by nature. If you guys have known me long enough, you probably have sensed that I'm not really good with conflict. I don't like it. It's not my favorite thing. I don't like it at work. I don't like it at church. I don't like it at home. I would rather just withdraw and be alone until everybody's okay and they forget about the conflict, and then I'll show back up and make a joke. Now, that's, more, that's more really how I, how I am bent. So when I read this, I thought the very last thing I want to do, first off, is ever admit that anyone wronged me because that equals conflict, and I definitely don't want to talk about it with them. Because that equals conflict. But Jesus tells us, man, we have to hit this head on. We have, to, we have to deal with it. We have to pray for our enemies. We have to love them. And loving them, part of loving our enemies oftentimes means that we forgive our enemies. The thing that I would challenge us to do is if you do have anyone that you would consider an enemy based on opposition or based on hostility, spend some extended time praying for that person and then come back and let me know if it is possible to continually pray for somebody that you're not willing to forgive or that you're not willing to ask for forgiveness, I believe that the Holy Spirit works in that way that as we pray for them, that hostility goes away and we're ready to mend that relationship. So how do we apply this to our lives? As I said earlier, I don't think it's an accident that Jesus deals with these things in sequence, retaliation and love for enemies. Uh, we all have a deep desire for justice and an even deeper desire to see justice done to those who we are at odds with or for those who have wronged us and the good news for us is that God shares that same desire for justice as we said earlier like it's really important for us to remember that but it's also equally important for us to remember that that justice is his to deliver and not ours we have to spend time as believers repenting for the desire to retaliate we have to repent for the desire to get even and we have to trust God to defend us as he sees fit I believe if we flee from the desire to retaliate, Jesus' teaching is that we are now free to love our enemies. Once we can free from, flee from that desire, we are now free to love our enemies as God has loved us. But this is something that takes great humility. So where do we look to see the type of humility that it takes to flee from retaliation and to love your enemies? I think you look no further than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like, was there ever a better example of what it means to be humble and to love your enemies than Christ going to the cross on our behalf? The death of Christ in which he absorbed the wrath of God that was meant for us so that we could have a relationship with the Father? Like, how is that for justice? 
<laughs> That's not even on, on the spectrum of justice. But yet Christ humbled himself. He did that for us because he loved us even when we were enemies of God. It's so important for us to, to, like, to have that, to know it, to own it, to dwell on it, and to live in it. Was there ever anyone ever who was more wrong than Christ? The penalty for our sin that we deserve because we were enemies of God was laid on Jesus, and now we have been made new in Christ. And here's the kicker. Because of that, now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can forgive our neighbor. Like, we can release hostility. We can release the opposition. We can release the things that create enemies, and we can walk away from the need for retaliation and love and pray for our enemies, and furthermore, pray that they would come to know Christ if they don't. Pray that through that action, even if they do know Christ, that they would know more of him because of the way that we have portrayed his grace in bringing this truth to us. This is not something that I want you to like think that you can just go out and work harder at. This is something that we must plead with the Holy Spirit to put within us. This is not our natural desire. Trust me, it's not. Some of you are built like me. You'd rather run from the conflict. Some of you are built the opposite of me, and you'll run toward the conflict to make it worse. Like, that, that's just our, that's our bend, and we know it, we have to know it about ourselves, and before we walk into these situations, we must first off be praying for the Holy Spirit to do the work in the, in, in the hearts of our enemies, praying for the Holy Spirit to do the work in our hearts, but even more so trusting that he will, and he is, even before we ask, working, preparing the way for us. Here's the reality. We mentioned it earlier. I know there are people in this very room who are at odds with each other for one reason or another. And here's what I want to bring to you this morning. I would pray that before you even consider coming up here in a minute and taking communion, that you would fix that with your brother. Like there's a lot of other applications for this text. But when we begin to apply it within the body of Christ, the understanding is that we should be to the point where before we can bring ourselves to humble ourselves before the Lord, to take communion, to pray to God that we would be fixing these issues with our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a love that's woven here with why court talked so long last week. And like I said, I thought it was great about covenant community and keeping covenants with one another. Like if I wrong you, let me know. Right? Is there anything more, is there anything more diffusing in a hostile relationship than one side laying down their sword? It ends it. The problem is we're so prideful that that sword is welded to the end of our arm. And we won't release it. And God calls us, man, love your enemies. Love those who are hostile. Love those who you have opposition with. And there is no better way, in my opinion, to love someone than to forgive them for a wrong or ask them to forgive you when you have wronged them. Nothing better than that. And I would pray for you, believer, today, before you even consider taking communion, that you would fix that. Because we're all better for it. And Lord is glorified through it and there's nothing more freeing than that i also know there are people in this room right now who are at odds with neighbors or co-workers or family members and i pray that as you take of communion that you would ask forgiveness from god for that and then seek forgiveness for that person later and lastly and probably i don't want to say most importantly but very important i know there are people in this room who do not know the god who frees us from the need for retaliation and allows us to love our enemy. And I pray that this morning, that if that is you, that you would consider Christ. 
Consider your standing before God today. Accept the grace that's being extended to you through that death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that we talked about earlier that makes all these things possible. That is available for you also. Those of us who do not know Christ, I would pray that today would be the day that you do that because Christ, through Christ, God has made a way from you, a way for you to be released from your status as an enemy of God. He's made a way from you to a way for you to no longer be considered an enemy of God, but be considered a friend of God. And I pray today that that would become reality for you. If this is you, there are going to be prayer partners available along the sides of the auditorium when we're done here, and they would love to pray with you and talk about that. So, what I want to do right now is, is pray for us. I'm going to turn it over to Brendan, who will lead us in a time of worship and communion. Um, let me pray, and then I'll I'll let it go. Father, we, first off, let us just be thankful for your grace, God, the grace that saves us, the grace that empowers us to obey your commands, God, the grace that, that helps us to, to grow, to be more like you, to image our Father, God. We're so thankful for that. And God, I ask this morning that, that, that you would empower us to do that which you've commanded. God, without you, without your Holy Spirit, this is impossible. But God, through your Holy Spirit, I know that you can break you can break our will. God, you can break our need for revenge. You can break our need for retaliation. You can break our obstinate stubbornness that will not allow us to love that person or that family member or that spouse or that child or that brother and sister in Christ that has harmed us. God, I pray that you would break those things, take them from us this morning. God, by your grace, show us your, show us your goodness, God. Show us your goodness. Show us that it's not just for us, but it is for others also. God, may we, may we share the gospel not just with our words, but through the way we live our lives. God, let us, let us be changed and shaped by your word this morning. Father, I thank you for, for meeting with us, for being here with us this morning. God, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.